You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 88 by Rudolf Steiner, translated by James Hines, entitled Concerning the Astral World and Devakan. This is uh, Lecture 12.2, the second lesson notes, entitled the Bhagavad Gita. Given in Berlin Schlachtensee, summer 1903. The Bhagavad Gita, which contains in poetic language the most sublime teaching of virtue in the worldview of ancient India, forms a self-contained episode of one of the most famous and most ancient of the great heroic epics, the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is for the people of Sanskrit what the Homeric songs were for the Greeks and what the Nibelungen saga was for the Germanic peoples. The core of the Mahabharata is formed out of the ancient war songs and heroic epics from the age of the great migrations and wars of conquest on the Ganges River. The beginnings of this writing reach back as far as the 10th and 11th centuries B.C., They give a faithful picture of the mores of this most ancient age of heroes of India. Historical facts and personalities in poetic form are at the foundation of these descriptions, certainly as much as with other folk tales. In the center we find the battles between the two related tribes, the Kurus and Pandus, which end with the defeat of the heroic tribe of Kurus. The Bhagavad Gita has as its content a wonderful religious-philosophical conversation between Arjuna, the hero, and Krishna, the incarnated God who has become flesh. These light-filled, sublime, wisdom-filled teachings, the very sensitive distinctions between various feelings, and the ability to distinguish the finest, most subtle ethical questions not only allow us to perceive an as yet still unattained level of civilization, in this realm of culture of our forefathers. Actually, they also affect us as an immediate revelation of the Spirit of God. Wilhelm von Humboldt was so deeply moved by the incomparable beauty and depth of this writing that he cried out enthusiastically, quote, It is worth it to have lived so long in order to discover such a poem. Close quote. At the beginning of the story, the two enemy armies stand opposing each other, ready for battle. Arjuna, the hero, guides his gold chariot, decorated with white roses, into the middle of the battlefield in order to see up close the enemy eager for battle. When he discovers blood relatives in the enemy's numbers, father, sons, grandsons, cousins, and brothers, who are fired with rage to kill one another, his noble heart rises up in wild grief, and overcome with compassion, his bow that had already been stretched falls away. He cringes at the thought of a blood feud. He would rather forego fame and lordship than commit this sin. He would rather die at their hands than be guilty of the death of one of his relatives. Nevertheless, Krishna approaches the despairing Arjuna and assures him of the need for the battle by reminding him of his duty as a fighter 
and enlightening him concerning his dharma. Arjuna, the hero, is a human being, and his inner life is the battlefield on which the difficult battles of soul are fought. Vacillating between the earthly and heavenly parts of our soul life, in contention with feelings, plagued by doubt, we often do not know where to turn, what our duty is. For every separate being has its own special duty, its dharma, that it must recognize. What did ancient India understand by the word dharma? Dharma has many meanings that support and complete each other, and each of these meanings is related to the others. Dharma is closely connected to karma. They relate to one another as fruit and seed. Dharma is what has already become, the result of past karma, past activities. Dharma is the creative principle in us at present, and in turn creates the karma of the future. Dharma is the upright force in our own thinking and acting, our own personal truth. It characterizes our inner nature through the degree of evolution we have presently reached. It is the law that determines the growth for future stages of development, the ongoing threads of life. The sequence of incarnations is connected like the links of a continuous chain. Dharma is our past, present and future at the same time and works in us as father, mother and son. The father as higher self is above being as his truth and his law. The mother as the developing being, and the Son as the future. An incarnation is worthless and lost if it does not become, through activity, a transitional step to higher development. Just as meaningless is any striving or wish for perfection that is not achieved through previous activity. In inner development there are no leaps. In patience we weave for ourselves garment after garment on the loom of time. What was practiced on a past step becomes the foundation and aptitude for future steps. Activity in a previous period becomes skill in a later time. It is always difficult for us to find our own dharma, the law of our personal existence. Difficult to fulfill the commandment to know yourself. One must become accustomed for a long period of time not to be influenced by the things of the sense world, not to be influenced by our wishes and admired models. We must become accustomed to immersing ourselves in deep reflection, listening to the inner voice that shows us the path of our obligations and tasks, our place, our relationships, the circle into which we have been born, what has been laid upon us. When we properly recognize the step we are presently on in the course of our existence, the degree of our imperfection, when we become clear concerning the truth and our duty on our step of development, then self-knowledge in not serving egotism. Rather, that is dharma, for dharma means following the law of our development in the sense of self-knowledge. Then we have found our own personal tone, and we can bring it to sound forth powerfully in harmony with the eternal in the world. We must come to understand our inner connection with the cosmos as a part of the same. Our vibrations must harmonize with the rhythmic movements of the cosmos. 
injustice and sin are nothing more than disharmony. When our irregular vibrations cause interruptions and disturbances in the lawful progress of cosmic happenings, the more we feel ourselves at one with the cosmos, the more will it reveal to us. The only spirit to speak to us will be the one we have come to understand. We can know only a part of the great eternal truth, to the same extent that we have manifested greatness and wide range in our own karma through our own activity. This wide range, the sphere of our earthly activity, is increased life after life in our path of evolution. We progress in knowledge and capability, for our destiny is gradually to take up into ourselves the entire conceptual content of our world, our cosmos. We could never do that without a step-by-step experiencing within ourselves of the entire wealth of the world of appearances. Nature lives in us when we take hold of her completely. All those who clearly understand that they have been born into the circle that they themselves prepared through their previous karma must be overcome by calm, peace and contentedness with their lot in life. They must also know that they must faithfully fulfill their destiny and that they are to exhaust through their activity the entire range of their destiny. In this way they have achieved an area of knowledge through their own experience and then they can work on expanding their own path in order to create better and loftier conditions of existence in the future. Thus in loving understanding they will extend a hand to their brothers and sisters below them who are attempting to climb higher on the ladder of beings. For they once stood on the same branch and wrestled themselves higher with their hands extended upward to the brothers and sisters who had climbed ahead of them. Thus we see how everyone is different and has his or her own obligations and tasks. How clearly we must learn to discern so that we are not led away from our track so that we maintain our balance and follow our own law. The lofty leaders and enlightened kings divided the peoples of ancient India into castes with wise foresight, as gruesome as that might appear to modern Europeans who are accustomed to freedom and unlimited choice. Nevertheless, there was a deep meaning at the foundation of this strict coercion. The caste divisions of ancient India corresponded entirely to the natural divisions of the human race. Everyone was born into the caste appropriate to his or her own karma. Individuals had first to fulfill the entire range of tasks within their caste before they were mature enough for a new incarnation into the next higher caste. As long as their own judgment remained undeveloped on a lower step, they had to learn obedience. In serving, they had to learn the virtues of faithfulness and devotion. Thus the caste of Sudra formed the school of unconditional obedience and submission. Only these practiced virtues made self-command, self-determination, and a loving and gentle exercise of power possible. In the second caste, the Vaisya, where farming and livestock were carried out, Human beings were brought into intimate relationship with the surrounding nature. By the sweat of their brows they learned to work the soil of Mother Earth. They sowed and harvested and 
thus produced nourishment for their fellow human beings. They practiced all the virtues of a farmer. Then they practiced commerce and industry, assimilating wealth. And they had to take part in many of the vices of their caste. Through both discipline and greed, they often learned wise economy and the proper use of their wealth for the benefit and use of their fellow citizens. If they learned to perfection their lessons on this step, then in the following incarnation they could become kshatriya and be born into the warrior caste. Here they must engage their strength for the defense of their fatherland. They would acquire strength through courage, bravery and self-denial in order to be adequate to any danger. They could do that only if they were prepared at any moment to sacrifice their life to their obligations. A warrior must be willing to give up physical life so that the soul can bring about the spirit of self-emptying and become the creator of ideals. The body is designed for one thing, to help the evolution of the inner life. It must disappear when the soul needs a new body, that is, a more appropriate garment for advancing its evolution. War is the school that must be passed through in order to achieve the highest caste of Brahmins, for whom, because of their evolution and knowledge, battle and killing are a mortal sin. Krishna says, comforting Arjuna, that a kshatriya is commanded to kill your enemy, but he knows that, in truth, he can never kill one of his brothers, nor can he be killed by one of them. Only by achieving the highest perfection in all duties of the other castes can one become capable of entering the Brahman or priest caste. Brahmins must keep themselves far from battle and conflict. They collect and guard the noblest good of humanity. They are the spiritual leaders and teachers. They impart to their weaker brothers and sisters peace, wisdom, and knowledge. All the experiences of previous centuries dwell in them as the ability to guide humanity to its eternal destiny. Thus we see how each step in development must fulfill its own dharma. What counts as good on one step of evolution, on another must be avoided as evil. Good and evil have their place in the eternal world order. In the eternal world order they lose the meaning that we attribute to them. They are necessary, for they are the poles of development. They have come forth from one source. Good and evil, action and reaction, condition and supplement each other as sleeping and waking, as rest and activity, as light and shadow. And they belong to one another as do spirit and matter. It is Atma, both as purest light, the source of all being, and Atma as mirror reflection the darkest point and germinal power in darkest matter that gives the impulse toward development and refinement of matter in eternal alternation and change. This continues until the opposition has evolved its way up to the light source of the spirit and it is united with its starting point in nirvana. The opposition, the eternal becoming of matter, is set free from the original unity of world harmony at the beginning, from the eternal ground of all things, of all being.
this eternal becoming of matter manifests in countless changing forms evolving out of itself and developing up to fulfillment in order to melt together once again the variety of appearances, the many into a unity. But this unity is now enriched by the countless experiences of the separated entities. The circle is closed with nirvana, issuing forth and returning to the eternal original spirit. For the Western worldview, which sees its highest goal in the development of what presently exists, nirvana signifies nothing. Nothing of what counts as perfected being in the Western world is present in nirvana. Nirvana is the nothingness of karma. No more karma can arise because dharma has become revealed. Worldviews of the past looked to what was not yet, and present being was just an imperfect transition to something higher. They regarded every state of activity as an intermediate stage between imperfection and the absolute perfection of nirvana. The goal and ideal for them was the condition of a being whose entire dharma was revealed, whose karma was thereby burned up, and who could then enter nirvana. The end of lecture 12.2